I'm Roy Lee Lindsay with the North Carolina Pork Council, and I want everyone to remember, bacon makes everything better. Not the first time, not the second time, but the third time that we're talking about the ACC and Florida State right here on the North Carolina Sports Network. I am Mike Waddell. He is David Glenn. And Dave has been an attorney here in North Carolina since 1994. During his legal career, contract law was one of his greatest areas of practice and expertise. And in recent years, He's included sports law as part of the classes that he's taught as an adjunct in the communications department at UNC Wilmington. Now, David has also covered the ACC as an award-winning broadcaster and journalist since 1987. And his journalism career has included breaking some of the biggest news stories in the ACC and in North Carolina sports history. In fact, bet you didn't know this. On April 22, 2013, our own David Glenn was credited by the Associated Press, CBS, ESPN, and NBC, plus dozens of other major media markets as the first to report the news of the ACC's original grant and rights, which is more than a decade later, one of the foundational elements in the ongoing dueling lawsuits between Florida State University and the Atlantic Coast Conference. David, welcome into round three of this titanic battle between Charlotte Mecklenburg and Leon County, Florida. And before we get into Florida State's latest amended lawsuit against the ACC and the ACC's amended lawsuit against Florida State, for those who may be new to this dispute, how would you describe the big picture showdown between the Seminoles and the league that they have called home since 1991. Well, Mike, it's always great to be with you in part because you carry a lot of expertise as a former Division I athletic director. And I hope I can add some unique perspective given that background you described as a professor, as a longtime attorney, and as a guy who's covered the Atlantic Coast Conference actually for even a little bit longer than Florida State has been a member of the Atlantic Coast Conference. But to answer your question, one way to state the big picture here is that Florida State University wants a divorce from the Atlantic Coast Conference, mainly because the ACC, which was often the wealthiest college conference in America in the 1990s when the FSU Seminoles joined, and even the early 2000s, the ACC has fallen so far behind the Big Ten and the SEC with its TV contracts, and more generally, on overall money matters. When one party wants a divorce in life or in sports, there is going to be a divorce. Whether the other party or parties want that to happen or not. So the main questions moving forward as I see them are really when will this divorce happen, number one, and number two, how much will it cost ultimately for Florida State to leave? Okay, so let's take those questions separately. First, when is this divorce between the ACC and Florida State likely to happen? Well, we've told everyone from the beginning to expect a multi-year legal process, and that remains the most likely scenario. 
We're only two months into these dueling lawsuits, and they haven't even had their jurisdiction battles yet. Remember, Florida State filed its complaint in the state of Florida, as you mentioned. The ACC filed its complaint in the state of North Carolina. So there will be arguments over the proper forum for this dispute, even before you get very far on the merits of the case, meaning who has the better legal arguments in this area or that area. Obviously, there are already some ACC athletic schedules out for the 2024-25 academic year, and those aren't going to change. Could the Seminoles be out of the ACC by, let's say, the summer of 2026, more than two years from now? Possibly yes, but that would require, Mike, either a legal decision, which definitely is not coming anytime soon, or a legal settlement which theoretically could happen at any time, but seems unlikely to happen, extremely unlikely to happen, anytime I would say in the 2024 calendar year, mainly because both sides need time to see how well or how poorly their legal arguments are going before they would want to decide how much to compromise or not compromise on the dollar amount of a legal settlement. The better your case is going, of course, the more leverage you have. The worse your case is going, the less leverage you have. And we're just not there yet. We're not in front of judges who are evaluating the merits of these arguments. Until the attorneys for both sides get a better sense of how the relevant judges are viewing their arguments, there is just no realistic possibility of a legal settlement. And we're definitely months away, maybe even a year or more away from reaching that point. Gathering evidence takes time, interviewing witnesses, taking depositions takes time, filing legal paperwork or preparing it takes time. The wheels of justice can be notoriously slow. You do not just jump to the front of the line because you're a sports organization. So in all likelihood, we'll still be talking about this legal wrangling in 2025, a year from now. How much is it going to cost Florida State to get out of the ACC? Well, Mike, that is literally the half a billion dollar question. At one end of the spectrum, FSU would like to leave as soon as possible and for zero financial penalty. At the other end of the spectrum, FSU's own lawsuit mentions a potential loss for the Seminoles of $572 million, which includes a traditional exit fee of about $130 million and the loss of the Seminoles' media rights because of the grant of rights. Those are valued at around $33 million per year, and that's all the way through 2036, which is the end date of the ACC's existing multimedia contract with ESPN. There is an opt-out clause in there for ESPN, but the contract is, is drawn with 2036 as a contemplated ending point. Using various legal theories, the Seminoles are trying to attack both the $130 million traditional exit fee, and the grant of rights that is often hard to explain but much discussed. As a hypothetical, by the summer of 2026, the grant of rights number would actually be down. There would not be as many years remaining on it, right? It would be down to about $330 million because at that point, there would only be 10 years remaining on it. So what's being described right now is a $572 million combined penalty would actually be down to, let's just call it a maximum of 460 or $470 million. That's if the Seminoles were to officially leave the ACC in the summer of 2026, 
without winning any of their legal arguments. That probably won't happen, but this is just a hypothetical scenario for illustration purposes. Obviously, the ACC will want that number, the financial number in the end, to be as close to that $470 million I just mentioned as possible. And FSU is going to want that number to be as close to zero as possible. These sorts of lawsuits can be notoriously expensive to litigate all the way to the end. So obviously, both sides at some point, not soon, but down the road, are going to have some incentive to consider a reasonable settlement number, whether that's a $100 million that I think the Seminoles would love or the $400 million or so that I think the ACC would love to see. David, there seem to be a lot of Florida residents, Florida State fans, who believe that the Seminoles are going to find a magic legal loophole and leave the ACC essentially for free. No harm, no foul. We're going. See you later. Y'all have a nice day. You've told us repeatedly that that's an unrealistic scenario. So you've also told us that the Seminoles could still win by maybe paying a mitigated amount. How is that so? Well, this is just one hypothetical scenario, Mike, but in my opinion, Florida State should consider and would consider it an enormous victory if they were able to leave the ACC for just, again, as a hypothetical example, let's call it the $130 million traditional exit fee. It's actually calculated under ACC bylaws as three times the league's operating expenses. Right now, those operating expenses are $42, $43 million a year. Multiply it by three. That's how you get the $130 million exit fee that any ACC school would be dealing with right now under the terms and conditions that the membership has agreed to. The Seminoles know that even if they can clean up this massive legal mess with the ACC, especially if they can do that, they'll be a great candidate for Big Ten expansion, mainly because, one, they have a great football brand. Two, that great brand has a proven track record of attracting huge numbers of TV eyeballs specifically for Florida State football games. And three, the new Sunshine State geography they would bring to the Big Ten follows that theme where, remember, the Big Ten isn't just expanding anywhere. The Big Ten went to California for UCLA and Southern Cal. They went to Washington for the University of Washington, to Oregon for the University of Oregon. They're good football programs in some cases, but they also have big alumni bases. They're in new territory beyond the existing Big Ten footprint. Well, Florida, of course, the state of Florida is one of the most populous states in our country. So it would not only be new geography for the Big Ten, it would be enormous new geography along with that Florida State football brand. And oh, by the way, Florida State University, in my time following it, has gone from a school that was nothing like the Big Ten academically way back in the early 1990s when the Seminoles joined the ACC to getting closer and closer and closer to looking a lot like the Big Ten academically. So the Big Ten has privately told FSU, we're not talking to you until you get your legal mess cleaned up. But those same private conversations imply that the Seminoles would be one of the best candidates in all of America to be in a Big Ten expansion target. There is also a chance that the Southeastern Conference, not wanting the Big Ten to gain a recruiting stronghold in the Southeast, 
would overcome the objections of the Florida Gators and maybe other SEC members and become interested in the Seminoles as well. Again, that'll only happen after FSU gets through these dueling lawsuits. In either the Big Ten scenario or the SEC scenario, FSU, FSU knows that it could handle a $130 million exit fee. Why? Because the school would be making so much more money in those other leagues. In the late 2020s, so I mean five years from now, the late 2020s and the early 2030s, under the TV contracts, this is not speculation, under the TV contracts that are already signed and in place, the Big Ten and the SEC schools are going to be getting annual checks from their respective conference offices worth more than $100 million. That's per school per year in those two leagues by the end of the current decade. And those, those checks, by the way, are largely TV money, but they also take into consideration not just the league's TV contract with their partners, but NCAA tournament money, bowl money, and some other uh, league-accrued financial money, sponsorships, and the like. All that is divided. And by the end of this decade, again, the annual check you'll get as a Big Ten member is $100 million plus. The annual check you'll get as a SEC number is, is $100 million plus. That same projected number in the ACC by the end of the current decade is about $60 million per school per year. Again, that's total revenue, the check you get from the league, your share of it. That new reality, meaning a $40 million or so annual difference that the Seminoles would be getting on the plus side by being invited and accepting an invitation to the Big Ten of the SEC, that would make paying even a $130 million ACC exit fee much, much, much easier to digest, both philosophically and financially. So $130 million would be an expensive win for Florida State in the short term, but I bring that up as a potential huge victory in the long run, especially as it compares to the $470 million alternative that the ACC would like to see as the conclusion of these legal maneuverings. David, those numbers are astounding because when I was on the executive team at the University of Arkansas in the SEC or at the University of Illinois in the Big Ten, our total budgets were not $100 million. So to think of the media rights jumping up that big, that, that that's just really groundbreaking information. It's, it's well known, but it's still... Hard to really wrap my head around that. Now, with those numbers... Hey, hey Mike, you Mike, before you get to your next question, I'm glad you brought that up. Let me just insert here that 20 or so years ago, I believe the year was 2003. Wait till you hear... that. Well, this won't surprise you, but I hope it, it surprises or at least informs our viewers and listeners. In the year 2003, so roughly 20 years ago, the Atlantic Coast Conference paid out the largest check per school in the entire country. The size of that check was roughly $11 million per school per year. And that was the best in the country. So of course, this whole evolution over the last two decades, as America has fallen in love with football and football has grown to become you know, 80% of a the value of a conference's TV deal with its various partners, it used to be a closer to a 50-50 split between men's basketball and football. Those days are over. So it's not, 
it's not that the ACC has not grown. It has. The ACC's check has grown from that best in the country, 11 million per school, to an average of more than 40 million per school. That's a that's pretty good growth over 20 years. The problem, as we've discussed many times, is that the Big Ten and the SEC have just grown so much more quickly, in part because of their better football TV products, that the ACC's already fallen behind by 10 to $20 million per school per year. And it's in the process of falling behind gradually so that there's that $40 million a year gap per school per year that I was describing earlier between those big two, the Big Ten and the SEC, and really the other two, the Big 12 and the ACC. All the other leagues, now that the Pac-12 has imploded, are way below the ACC and the Big 12. All problems are relative. Those other leagues would all love the problems financially and otherwise that the ACC and the Big 12 have. Those two proud leagues just obviously now pale in comparison financially to the money trees in the backyard that the Big Ten and the SEC have been building over these last two decades. He's David Glenn. I'm Mike Waddell. We're talking FSU and ACC legal palooza here on the North Carolina Sports Network. And David, lots of numbers. We're talking about these astronomical financial figures. What does a win look like for the ACC? I mean, it's obvious there's going to be a divorce here, yeah. but but who's going to get the custody of the, the kids and who's going to have to go find a new house? Well, just as I said, and this is just my opinion, if I were Florida State, I would consider the $130 million a win. I think one thing to keep in mind from the ACC's perspective is that the league's goals are more diverse than Florida State's goals. Here's what I mean. The Seminoles' lawsuit goals boil down to three things. Number one, leave the ACC as soon as possible. Number two, leave for as little money as possible. I'm not exactly breaking news with that. Number three, show the Big Ten and the SEC that the legal black cloud is no longer hovering over the Seminoles and has finally been resolved. Whatever that looks like, even a bad result would at least give the Seminoles certainty financially and otherwise and would allow the Big Ten and the SEC to finally approach the Seminoles if that's what they want to do at that point. Again, those invitations aren't coming while the Seminoles are tied up in court. At least one ACC goal is obvious. Force the Seminoles to pay as much of that $400 to $500 million as possible. That would mean the entire $130 million exit fee and then probably some negotiated number in the hundreds of millions from the ACC's perspective that would allow the Seminoles to essentially buy back their media rights from the ACC that they gave away in the grant of rights. The other most important ACC goal is extremely essential. The ACC needs to avoid at all costs, Mike, the scenario where either it's $130 million exit fee, which of course applies to all of its members, right? We're talking about the Seminoles, but it's it applies to anybody who wants to leave. The ACC also wants to avoid at all costs a scenario where its grant of rights through 2036 is somehow down the road by a judge and upheld on appeal, hypothetically, if those things were to be declared invalid under antitrust law or any of the other legal arguments that Florida State is making. Obviously, from the ACC's perspective, this is about a lot more than just the Florida State Seminoles. 
If FSU leaves but has to pay, let's pick a number, $400 million, that is a nice windfall for the ACC and its remaining members. And it serves as a warning to Clemson or any other remaining school that might also have a wandering eye for the Big Ten or the SEC or somewhere else. If, on the other hand, the exit fee or the grant of rights were declared invalid, and I mean as a matter of law, then obviously Clemson and every other remaining ACC school that could conceivably get an invitation from those two, one of the two or both of those wealthy conferences, then all of a sudden the Tigers or someone else can see a much less expensive way out. They would be dodging both this expensive legal process that Florida State is enduring right now and those other ACC schools who might want to leave would also be dodging some huge chunk of that 400 or 500 million dollars. Now again, that's only if this gets all the way to a conclusion these dueling lawsuits between FSU and the ACC and a judge, not the first judge, but a prominent judge, one theoretically held up on appeal, if the ACC loses the validity of the grant of rights, that is a massive blow to the future of this 71-year-old league. And if somehow that $130 million exit fee were deemed either excessive or inappropriate or were dramatically lowered for one reason or another, that too would be a pretty significant blow to the ACC. Hey folks, David Glenn here. I cannot offer a greater endorsement or a bigger compliment than telling you about the folks that I use for important matters in my own life. That's the case with the Lawson Insurance Group, led by three actual brothers, Ken Lawson, Miller Lawson, and Michael Lawson. These guys operate a very successful family-oriented business right here in Raleigh, and that office happens to be one of those beautiful blends of NC State grads and UNC grads and graduates, fans and supporters of other colleges and universities all over North Carolina. I know these guys, I trust these guys, and I send these guys my own insurance business business and that of my family. The next time you have insurance needs, I hope you'll do the same. The Lawson Insurance Group is known for its commitment to community and its dedication to ensuring that North Carolinians and their businesses are prepared for life's inevitable challenges. With the reminder that as a high street insurance partner, Lawson Insurance Group offers local expertise and support that combined with high street's extensive national resources means more choice and support for you as their client. As we speak, Miller Lawson's helping the Glenn family with our auto insurance needs and Ken Lawson is the guy to call for your commercial insurance needs. If you Google high street Lawson Insurance, their website will be the first to pop up. The latest Florida State filing has a lot of personal attacks on former UNC Athletics Director and ACC Commissioner John Swafford. Full disclosure, you and I both know and consider John to be a friend. However, he's been accused of self-dealing, nepotism, and fiscal mismanagement, specifically in and around his son, Chad, who has been a 16-year employee of Raycom. This was probably the first of what I think will be many of these emptying the clips by both sides. This is the first one, and it's pretty nasty. Yeah, and I think my main takeaway with all that, and quick aside, I've known John since probably 1987. I do like and respect him a lot. Uh, I've written enough things and probably said enough things that he didn't like uh, that I've been on both sides of that fence. You know me. I just call it as I see it. 
Uh, John and I have had a professional positive relationship overwhelmingly for that, uh, what is that now, 37-year period. Um, but I don't always see the world his way. Um, and I, I've been among those who criticized him for his handling of some of these TV negotiations. So uh, it is a positive professional relationship, but it's also been an arm's length relationship, uh, at least as I see it. My main takeaway is that Florida State's attorneys are trying to maximize the ACC's incentives to settle this case. And here's what I mean. The most obvious and direct way to compel someone to settle a lawsuit is to offer a massive amount of money, right? But Florida State understandably wants to use that only as a last resort if, and only if, at some point down the road, they're concerned about the quality of their legal arguments or their ability to win on the merits of the case. And that could happen. I personally believe the ACC has more of the good legal arguments, but Florida State definitely has some compelling legal arguments. So the last thing Florida State needs to do at this early stage is offer a huge amount of money to settle. But in high profile lawsuits, especially, there are other ways to give your opponent incentives to settle. And so right now, in the meantime, as the case unfolds, Florida State wants to attack the ACC in some of those other ways that sometimes encourage people to settle lawsuits. They want to make the other side uncomfortable with the process uh, or embarrassed by mostly private matters that become, because of the lawsuit, public matters. They want to air the conference's dirty laundry publicly. They want to publicly drag through the mud the names and reputations of former ACC Commissioner John Swafford and current ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips. They want to ridicule them for their bad business decisions. And again, there were some bad business decisions, as I've emphasized in previous videos, just because decisions turned out to be not as good in their judgment as the SEC's way of negotiating or the Big Ten's way of negotiating and all of those details, that doesn't mean you win a lawsuit. It's, it's not a winning legal premise that other people managed similar situations better than you did. That's not, the, that's not a strong foundation for a winning lawsuit. There has to be other things in, involved. Bad faith, um, intent to deceive, severe, extreme fiduciary mismanagement, et cetera. And it's up to the Seminoles to prove those more extreme things. Again, stuff went wrong is not the basis of a winning argument. They want the Seminoles to bring up sensitive topics such as nepotism, with John Swafford's son being an employee at Raycom at the same time that John was telling ESPN and other potential TV partners that the league preferred that Raycom was able to continue to televise some ACC games, which Raycom ultimately did through a subcontracting deal with ESPN. FSU also wants to challenge the legality of some of the ACC's decisions, as you saw in their amended complaint, by scrutinizing whether there were examples of the ACC or its commissioner not following the league's own rules or bylaws in various decisions that impacted details of the league's ESPN contract or the grant of rights. The, the Seminoles want to make this messy and dirty because they want to see if the ACC has the stomach for a very public, very drawn out, as you said, there will be more things in the clip down the road. Um, 
if the money is not enough to bring somebody to the table to settle, well, then maybe these other things give them one more reason to consider a legal settlement earlier than maybe they would otherwise. And if you're Florida State, you got to think everybody, all these schools are taking shots against a big monolith in the NCAA and they're beating them every time out. So why don't we just go ahead and take our shot, throw everything up against the wall? I mean, it, it, it is kind of a pathway that we're seeing develop and mature in a variety of cases, whether it's NIL, whether it's Tez Walker against the NCAA and his eligibility, and now Florida State, the ACC. It's it's not going to go away anytime soon, and we're lucky to have you, David Glenn, here on the North Carolina Sports Network, where we can talk about these things and really bring an unbiased opinion and over 37 years of experience with the Atlantic Coast Conference, and a lot of those years, as you mentioned, David, since 1991 with Florida State. Yeah, Mike, I'm following those other lawsuits as well. Um, the NCAA is in a precarious position, even as it's begging the United States Congress to come up with a new framework for the future of college sports, the future of amateur athletics at the university level. The NCAA has a horrible track record in modern day lawsuits because it's become a multi-billion dollar industry and, and there is no avenue for collective bargaining with the athletes the way, of course, the NFL and the NBA, how do you create an NFL draft? How do you tell somebody coming out of college which team you have to play for in the NBA or the NFL? The NFL and NBA drafts would be patently illegal if it were not for the fact that those draft terms were negotiated by the players associations in those leagues and the other side, attorneys representing the owners in those leagues. Illegal things become legal because they were collectively bargained by two parties with uh, adequate representation. That's never been the case in college sports, and that's why the NCAA continues to be on the wrong end of these lawsuits, some of them multi-billion dollar lawsuits. So this FSU-ACC argument is unfolding at, at, on a very similar timetable as some of those biggest NCAA lawsuits, uh, some of which won't see the inside of a courtroom until about a year from now, but these athletic directors and university presidents know that there could be a multi-billion dollar NCAA settlement hovering over everybody's head, uh, even as this more regional lawsuit unfolds between Florida State and the ACC. Hey folks, David Glenn, right here in Raleigh, one of my favorite restaurants for many years has been The Oak, Scratch Kitchen and Bourbon Bar. It's located on Lake Boone Trail, which happens to be a perfect location for a great meal and beverage if you're on your way to nearby Carter-Finley Stadium or perhaps PNC Arena for a concert, Wolfpack or Hurricanes game or other event. The menu is incredibly tasty and creative. The atmosphere is a lot of fun. The bourbon options are as high-end and varied as you'll find anywhere. The staff is super classy and first-rate, and I've just always loved the people, the food, and the overall vibe there. When I took Carolina Hurricanes owner Tom Dundon to lunch, yes, meaning the billionaire who owns the hockey team, I took him to the Oak. Seriously, it's that good. Learn more or make a reservation by visiting their website, theoakraleigh.com. That's theoakraleigh.com. Special thanks to Nick and Haley and their team for joining the family here at the David Glenn Show and the new North Carolina Sports Network. David, I guess we can just boil it down to this. Do you feel like the ACC should be concerned with the personal charges from Florida State against former ACC Commissioner John Swafford 
in self-dealing, nepotism, and financial mismanagement. Personally, Mike, I think Florida State's most intriguing legal arguments involve legal technicalities um, that we won't get into today because it will just make everybody's eyeballs roll up into the back of their head. Uh, I'm not as impressed by the dirty laundry or bad faith or fiduciary mismanagement stuff. Although, as I just said, I do understand from a legal perspective and from a per perception perspective why Florida State's lawyers are attacking on all of these fronts. That's what they should be doing in the legal sense. But one mistake I keep seeing a lot of Florida State fans make is forgetting that when FSU makes a point about nepotism or anything else, at some point down the road, there's typically going to be a counterpoint or two or three or ten from the other side. And at this point, reading these lawsuits does not show you how that stuff is going to play out down the road. The ACC, for example, is going to point out that John Swafford was not some sort of lone ranger as the ACC commissioner. He literally works at the discretion of the universities who were the ones who hired him in the first place. He literally works with the university chancellors and presidents including those at FSU over the years, on major decisions, including TV matters. He also worked closely with the ACC athletic directors, including those at Florida State, some of whom praised John Swafford profusely and specifically as a Florida State representative for his work, especially on the league's relationship with ESPN. You can look up those Stan Wilcox or John Thrasher uh, comments yourself if you want to. Swafford even worked especially closely over the years with a television committee made up of a subcommittee essentially of ACC athletic directors who got more into the nitty-gritty of TV negotiations with John Swafford and talked about the terms and reported back to the league as a whole. It, the impression of the lawsuit is that John Swafford is by himself in some dark, smoke-filled room whispering in the ear of ESPN and other potential TV partners. No! He has to bounce all these things off of university presidents and athletic directors, and especially his uh, television subcommittee. All parties who, in the real world, can and would push back if they saw something inappropriate unfolding. Given that bigger picture, the idea that John Swafford could just make huge decisions unilaterally and selfishly for 25 years is, and Florida State's attorneys know this, patently absurd. The FSU lawsuit actually mentioned that the ACC extended an expansion invitation to Boston College while John Swafford's son, Chad, was working in the BC Athletic Department. Is there anyone still connected in any way to planet Earth who really believes that a dozen or more ACC presidents on a matter as sensitive as realignment and expansion and a dozen or more ACC athletic directors whose jobs and reputations are on the line, are somehow those two dozen or more people going to be duped into adding Boston College as an ACC member because Chad Swafford works in the athletic department? There is no smart person no judge who would actually believe that. Now I am oh, sure. oh, oh, but there are a lot of people who will believe that, I, David. Sadly, but, but 
it's but, absurd. But flesh out this point. I am sure that the ACC also will point out that it was no secret that Chad Swafford had worked for Raycom for many years or that family members do business directly or indirectly all the time without it being a legal violation in any way. The fact that Chad Swafford was at Raycom and still is and was for a period of years, that fact by itself absolutely positively did not preclude his dad, John Swafford, from communicating his preference for the ACC to continue a relationship with Raycom. ACC presidents and athletic directors had every opportunity to object to the Raycom element, but they didn't. And Jeff, just as FSU can point out where Chad Swafford worked at the time, the ACC, again, this is down the road. This is the stuff that the fans haven't seen yet. The ACC can point out that literally every day in the business world, decision makers do tend to like to extend relationships with valued long-term partners with whom they have shared a deep history and many success stories. Raycom was an ACC partner 20 years almost before John Swafford even became the ACC commissioner. So, you know, you hear one thing about the dad and the son and you want to jump to a certain conclusion. It is, again, okay for Florida State to play with this dirty laundry if that's what they think is going to advance their case. I think just everybody needs to realize that more facts, more context can make it seem less nefarious. Just because Florida State alleges some sort of nefarious intent or nepotism in a legal complaint does not mean that that argument is automatically going to hold up in court. And one last thing, Mike, the Florida State lawsuits or filings, complaints, whatever you want to call them, repeatedly compare the ACC to the Big Ten and the SEC. You know what they keep leaving out, as our re readers and viewers and followers and listeners already know? They keep leaving out, conveniently, that the ACC is not like the Big Ten and the SEC when it comes to its football TV product. It's not in 2023. It wasn't in 2013. It wasn't in 2003. And you know what? Florida State knew it wasn't in 1991 when the Seminoles chose to join the ACC, mainly because the ACC needed to upgrade its football product. And they did. Florida State hadn't won any national championships prior to joining the ACC. They've won three now. So it worked out well in that sense for the Seminoles, and it worked out for the ACC because, yes, of course, the Seminoles have absolutely added great value to the ACC's football brand. But one quick number for you, Mike. In the 2023 college football season, how many conference games put aside non-conference intersectional games? I mean, either ACC versus ACC or Big Ten versus Big Ten. Conference games. How many drew TV audiences of 2 million viewers or more? The answer in 2023 is that the SEC drew more than 30 games of 2 million or more TV audiences. The Big Ten drew almost 30 games of conference football matchups that drew 2 million-plus TV audiences. The ACC had 10 conference games of 2 million or more, and only one of those was 5 million or more. 
The ACC, with 10 such games, 2 million or more viewers, conference games only, pales in comparison in, in just cold, hard numbers. Big Ten's just under 30. SEC is just over 30. TV executives, of course, know those 2023 numbers that I just gave you. Now, your logic tells you 2023 TV numbers are irrelevant, and I agree with you. They're irrelevant to any negotiations that happened in 2013 or even longer ago. Of course, they're irrelevant for that purpose. But these TV data have been around for decades. I'm not the only one who has written about them and researched them. When you're John Swafford, your TV partners know that ACC fans don't watch football in, in as consistently large numbers as those fans of those other two leagues. So the, the idea, again, Florida State's lawyers keep trying to say the ACC's TV deals pale in comparison with those other two leagues. You're right, they do. And bad decisions can be a part of that. But anybody who misses the starting point for all of it is, is going to find themselves clueless as this case unwinds. All judges that I know are smart enough to see what I'm about to share with you. The starting point, an overwhelming reason that the Big Ten and the SEC are making so much more money than the ACC and the Big Ten and everybody else right now, the overwhelming starting, starting point is decades-long track records of having gazillions of their fans watch dozens and dozens of their conference football games. The ACC's track record in those same cold, hard, raw numbers is way down there, more like the Big 12's numbers. So anyone trying to understand why the top two are so far above the, those other two needs to understand and start with the cold, hard numbers, suggesting in legal filings or message boards or anywhere else that it's somehow primarily because of bad judgment and bad contracts and incompetence and self-dealing and nepotism. Occam's razor is valuable. Look it up. Judges know what it is. <laughs> the starting point to understanding all of this is that the ACC football product was not, is not, hasn't been. I don't know what the future holds, but I know what the past tells us, and that's that any negotiator on behalf of the SEC or the Big Ten in an era when 80% of these conference TV deals are related to football, any negotiator, you could be half-baked, half-drunk, and still negotiate better deals for the SEC or the Big Ten than, you, than any human being. John Swafford, Jim Phillips, or anyone else would negotiate on behalf of the ACC. Again, not all of Florida State's legal arguments are bad arguments. It is patently, ridiculously, embarrassingly, embarrassingly absurd that so many people following this case don't realize that the comparisons to the Big Ten and the SEC are not apples to apples comparisons. Until you wrap your brain around that fact, you're never going to understand where this case come from or where it's going. And I wanted to leave on that important note. It's kind of like Brian Kelly said about the college football playoff. You had five conferences and you had four bids. Somebody was going to get left out. The TV thing is really this simple because I was on a TV committee in the Colonial Athletic Association at the same time from 2010 to 2013. ESPN 
hooked up with the SEC first. And then the Big Ten hooked up with Fox. Everybody else was fighting for scraps. Big 12, Pac-12, ACC. Everybody made the best deal they could. It didn't matter. They were never going to equal out to those first two deals. That might be a little bit simple, but it works for me. I think you're right. And, and I'm not suggesting that John Swafford and the ACC didn't miscalculate. Again, the term of the deal valued stability over the ability to, to renegotiate and take advantage of a rising market. There were all sorts of mistakes made with the benefit of hindsight. But mistakes in judgment and miscalculations are not going to win you the lawsuit. That's why I say a lot of those other Florida State arguments are much more intriguing because bad faith is really, really hard to prove. And the kind of extreme financial mismanagement that you need to prove to win on that uh, count is also, in my opinion, extremely unlikely to happen. You can list 25 things that with the benefit of hindsight, the ACC screwed up on. Not a winning lawsuit. You have to prove more than that. And that's why, again, I, I underline that Florida State is hitching its wagon, I think, much more to some of the legal technicalities and the rest of this stuff, while valid legal arguments, things that you can bring into court, you know, without risking disbarment or, or financial penalty from the judge. Uh, a lot of these other arguments, the more fact-based stuff, rather than trying to win on the law, a lot of it goes back to what we described earlier as basically trying to embarrass as many people associated with the ACC as possible so that the league has one more incentive beyond money to try to settle this case for as little as possible and as soon as possible, which is what Florida State's main goals include. That's David Glenn. I'm Mike Waddell. Be sure to stay logged on to our website, ncsportsnetwork.com. David and our staff have great daily content right there. Also, all of our social media channels, whether it's Facebook, X, whether it's TikTok or Instagram, we're all there at, at DNC Sportsnet.